Welcome to the Vell Institute podcast. I'm your humble servant and host, Terry Weaver. Our mission for this podcast is to bring you stories about veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are doing fascinating things with their lives. Our hope is to inspire you because we believe that inspired individuals will change lives, both theirs and others for the good. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit vellinstitute.org, that's V-E-L institute.org, to help us make an impact. Well, thanks for, thanks for joining me, Ryan, on the Dell Institute podcast, man. It is so cool. And I, I want to just say at the outset, um, I do a lot of, uh, I hold a lot of leadership development courses for Vell Institute. And if there was one way for a, a, a leader to develop and, um, and, and grow through a podcast, I would recommend yours. Um, because it is so honed in on extracting leadership principles from some of the best, man. I really appreciate the kind word. Thank you very much for saying that. Absolutely, man. Hey, uh, an important question for you. I always like to start off with a really important get to the, the heart of things question. And that is, uh, what's your favorite cartoon growing up? <laughs> You know, I didn't. I didn't really watch cartoons, so I I, I apologize that uh, that's not the best question as far as for me. Uh, I'm trying no, to really right. think about any of them, but that's I, that's not something that I uh, spent too much time doing growing up. Okay, if something hits you, man, just feel free yeah. to chime back in. Sure, I will. Some, had some wild answers. <laughs> okay. Uh, one of the uh, one of the questions that you start your podcasts off with, and, and kind of your learnings with, is um, is the question about sustained excellence. Mm-hmm. You've asked that question probably hundreds of times, I assume. Right. I haven't yep. listened to. Uh, I've listened to probably fifteen or twenty of your podcasts, and and that's the way you like to start that. Um, so you're, I think you're a good source to ask the question to of everybody that you've talked to, have you formulated your own answer to that question? How do you sustain excellence over, over a long time? Yeah, I think there's really two main components to um, the people I've found that have sustained excellence over an extended period of time. One, they're extremely thoughtful people. They um, uh, really are willing, able, and intentional about their the level of thought they put into the decision making to environmental design of how they operate. Um, they have a standard operating procedure, meaning they put frameworks in their lives for making decisions. They don't haphazardly just bounce around through life, but they're very intentional. And that would be the second part is that there's an intentionality about them, whether that they're intentional about learning, they're intentional about leading, they're intentional about making a positive contribution in the world. I found that, that the people who have sustained excellence are both very thoughtful and extremely intentional in their actions, behaviors, decisions, decisions that they make. Uh, that plays a big role in them with having the ability to sustain excellence. And then we get into other characteristics like being a dedicated learner, uh, quite curious individuals, people who are always asking questions, uh, looking for a better way, 
challenging their own assumptions by seeking knowledge from people smarter than them, being willing to put themselves in those types of rooms, uh, I think are, are some commonalities among those who have sustained excellence. Brother, that's a lot. That is a lot. And, and, and I, I say brother, because I feel like I've met a kindred spirit across the country. Like you, I mean, you're, you're honed in on leadership and, and uh, you're an educator and you're a learner simultaneously. And I think those are the best educators. Um, Speaking of, of learning, you've had Jim Collins, Carly Fiorina, Henry Cloud, Patrick Lencioni, Liz Wiseman, these are kind of the best, I mean, these are the, the best and brightest leadership minds. They're established. These aren't people who came on the scene, you know, a couple of years ago. So um, I want to ask you, because I actually found your podcast while searching for interviews of Jim Collins. I heard one podcast um, and I thought, man, if he's doing podcasts, I want to find the other ones. And I stumbled upon your podcast, The Learning Leader show and that was an incredible job you did with him any standouts from jim for you stuff that you uh grabbed from that podcast and will just immediately put into your into your life or maybe a a shift that happened yeah i would say there's a lot with him and that was certainly a a milestone achievement. It took years to get it and he's very uh, reclusive, doesn't do very many interviews. So I was happy to talk to him. Um, He he, he stopped me at one point in my tracks when I talked a lot about the why and the what, and he said, you're, you're thinking um, in the wrong order. Uh, First who, then what? First who, then why. Think about the people that you're intentionally surrounding yourself with because they are the ones who are going to have the biggest impact on your success or failure or life of mediocrity. Um, Be very intentional about those people. Who will you mentor? Who will be your mentors? Who will you help? Who will you marry? Who will be your friends? All of those questions are things you should be asking on a regular basis and being extremely thoughtful about those people. And so I I would say, Jim, maybe more so than any person I've ever met, really forced me to think carefully about my peer group, my friends, the events I go to, the people I uh, record with on my podcast, the ones who I'm in regular dialogue with. Those friends who may, may may not be growing at the same rate that I'm working towards growing, maybe we weren't going to see each other as much. Those people who were complainers, who were negative, who didn't bring positive energy to my life, we probably were not going to meet and talk as frequently after that conversation with Jim. So what I, if there was one word to distill down what I gathered from from that incredible talk with Jim, it's the who, all about the people that you are intentionally surrounding yourself with and how that's going to impact your life more than perhaps anything else you're going to do. So that's, that's a good that's a good thought. And um, let me just ask you this, because as you become more and more public, and, um, and you begin to create things. You just did a great uh, podcast with Adam Savage. But as you, as you make an impact and as you influence people, there are more and more people grasping for your time. Hey, can we get a coffee? Hey, can we meet for lunch? Hey, can we do a podcast? Hey, can we 
it's, it's unlimited. So how do you go about thinking about that without, and you know, this is, I think this is tough for leaders because you know, as well as I do, leaders have to serve. Mm -hmm. They have to be a benefit to others. So how do you deal with that? Yeah. Well, some of it, it does depend on just what's happening in that moment. So for, as, as I'm finishing a book manuscript and getting notes back from my publisher, uh, which is happening right now, the, you know, there's a mini retirement on some of those lunches and coffees. If somebody wants to go get coffee, I, I, I usually do not do that now. Um, however, if I, if I, I'd will block time every day to meet with people in my office. So it does inconvenience them sometimes if they're local that they'll have to come to me, but that saves me 15 minutes there and back driving. So that could save me 30 minutes if they're willing to come here. So if someone's willing and they really have good pertinent questions, um, I'm happy to to meet with people, um, d- depending on the day. Uh, but but as far as as the, we just go through life rhythms, right? Whether, like I said, the book stuff's going on, or if I have a heavy load of public speaking combined with a podcast to record that I need to prepare for, um, then uh, I will say no, or I will just push back some of those requests to later. Or maybe we could do it like we're doing it here on Zoom or over the phone as opposed to, to meeting in person. So I, I think it really depends. I certainly, like you mentioned, feel uh, um, that it's, it is part of our duty as leaders to serve others as we've been so fortunate to have, have people serve us. So I do like to stay in that constant rhythm of learning and teaching and doing a bit of both every single day. Uh, but but it depends. Some days are harder than others when it comes to how much time you can invest. If you're knee deep in the final edits and revising and rewriting, I like to uh, really block as much deep work time as possible uninterrupted in order to get that done at a high high quality rate, which is which is a currently a state that I'm in right now. So, for example, today, right, that's about three hours of that this morning. Uh, stop, pause, have this conversation with you. Uh, happen to be driving my wife to the airport for a trip. She's she's going on, and then I'll have another three hour block where I'll do nothing but work work on the book. So I think that's. Um, and then tonight, after I put put our daughters to bed, I will probably have another two hour block to work on the book. Um, and that's kind of how I like to segment my time. And once I get kind of done with that and turned it turn it back in, I will probably open up some things to meet with others more frequently than I am right now. Gotcha. Yeah. So seasons of life ebbs and flows. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Sure. Speaking of kids, um, I read your about page, which is really cool. It, it gives a kind of a timeline for your life. And at the very bottom kind of closing, uh, you talk about family first and foremost, they're most important. And I read something um, in one of your mindful Mondays that you send out. It's a, a weekly newsletter that has just little nuggets of wisdom in it. Um, this week's uh, that came out, there was a little link and a quote that was given in that link was the greatest gift you can give your children is your own emotional well-being. When I, you ever have those moments where something kind of stops you in your tracks, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I try, to have was... them, try to have them regularly. That's what the <laughs> Mindful Monday emails are about is kind of sharing those moments when, when something hits me that I'm reading or watching or thinking about. And then I like to share with, with, with 
the, the, the listeners of, of my show or the people who like to follow the, the work that I'm doing. So yeah, absolutely. That, that I, I, tr- I try to create those moments on a regular basis. I'm happy that it, it did it for you as well. Absolutely. And, um, and you know, if we're, if we're a parent, we're leading, we're influencing others. Somebody, sure. one of my mentors told me, um, your influence is never neutral. You're either taking somebody down or you're taking somebody up. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. Uh, it's, it's just like, uh, on a daily basis, you're, you're never really staying the same, right? You're improving or you're getting worse. My football coaches taught me that back in or the, my early times playing sports. And I think that is something I try to, to, to take with me regardless of what I'm doing that am I improving or am I getting worse? And hopefully I can spend, spend more time in that improvement zone than in that, than in that place of, of going backwards. Yeah. Let me ask you this. What, so I think at some point in, in learner's life, there's a, uh, a change that happens and, 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 you know, they decide to go on a journey of learning. For me, it happened after a rough patch in my life. Was there a point in your life where your kind of mind opened up and you got real curious about learning? Um, I know you were a football player early on, so you probably had a, 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 an intense focus on that. But what, when did that take place and how did that take place for you? I earned my MBA when I was uh, working, working full-time, and I considered going back to school because my company offered $5,200 a year uh, for educational reimbursement, and I used, wow. I'd maxed that out every single year. Uh, most companies uh, of that size I was in offer that exact amount of money per year for educational reimbursement. Uh, and so I thought about going back to school, and I looked, searched, um, and I was in a, a, in a management role at the time. Uh, getting ready to move to a director role. And I looked for programs on management, leadership, perhaps even a PhD program because those are out there. And I, I, I found curriculums that I liked a portion of them, but I didn't love the full curriculum. I didn't have the best experience getting my MBA. It was a grind. It was hard. I was working full time. I was, you know, a parent, those types of things that, that a lot of people you know, struggle through. So uh, at the same time that was happening, I was fortunate to have a dinner set up with Todd Wagner, and Todd is the the, uh, the business partner of Mark Cuban, and they started Broadcast.com. And at the dinner, Todd described the, the creation of that business and ultimately selling it to Yahoo for $5.7 billion. Amazing conversation, just the, the manner in which he told it, the ins and outs and deconstructing the success of that and, and the risk and the potential failures and how they were able to come out the other side as billionaires. And I loved it. I really loved the conversation, but my one regret is I didn't have it recorded. And I also want, because I, I wanted to share it with other people. I wanted others to be learning while what I was learning. And so at that moment, after that dinner, and after not finding the perfect curriculum for a leadership PhD, I thought, what if I create my own form of leadership PhD, I will go directly to to the professors of my choosing, ask to speak with them, record those conversations so that other people could learn at the exact same time as me, because I would release all of this in, in real time in the form of a podcast. And that's how my, my podcast, The Learning Leader Show, got started four and a half years ago, and now 300 
10 plus episodes later, here we are. And I, uh, I think everything about that process has been pretty cool because certainly, as you know, when you're, when you're recording all of your conversations or all of your important conversations with these really intelligent people who push you a bit, um, you can't help but improve if you're intentional about your preparation and about your reflection on those conversations because you listen to yourself and you realize, I sounded really stupid there. I need to correct that. Or that part was really good. Let's let's remember that. And so I think um, ha- being able to listen to yourself, learn in real time, as well as others getting to do it with you is a very cool way to build a community. And so I've been uh, I've loved that aspect of of this is the fact that there's been this 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 really uh, bright minded growth oriented type person who seems to be uh, attracted to my show and I get to interact with them on a regular basis and that's uh, that's one of my favorite things to do. Yeah, stories are are really neat, man. So is there any um, is there any particular story? where your podcast or a teacher on your podcast has really um, impacted a life to where there was a shift for them that you, that you can think of. I know that's kind of a, that's kind of a complex question, but um, these stories really stand out and they can, they yeah, can change, I, change lives. Yeah. I would say um, I, 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 I think you're asking about like the feedback I've received from people who listen. And so yeah. I, I would say this, the feedback that I receive on a daily basis is fuel. I mean, it is absolute fuel for me to keep at it, to keep going. Because when you hear that someone got this huge promotion or somebody changed their life for the better, um, because of an hour long podcast, or maybe they listened to a hundred of those hour long podcasts over the past couple of years. Uh, how, how gratifying is that? Because it's a little scary to publish your work. Anytime you hit publish, whether it's a blog post or a podcast or a speech, whatever it may be, then you're opening yourself up to be judged, judged harshly, negatively, right? If you put it out there, anybody can say whatever they want. And so, so doing that does create a bit of fear. Now doing it more and more, I think alleviates that fear and then receiving a lot of positive feedback helps as well. Um, but, but for me, it is absolutely fuel when I get those, those either handwritten or emails or, uh, any type of communication regards to saying that, that, that this particular episode changed my life, um, or helped me get, uh, what I was striving to get. And that, uh, I love Matt, man, that, that, that is one of the, the, I wouldn't say it's one of the biggest reasons I do it, but it is a huge benefit to doing it. Keeps your momentum. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, just thinking on fear, there's a quote that I read probably three years ago that really stood out to me. And, um, I think in originally, I, I originally heard it on the Ferris podcast. Uh, it's from, uh, a nice men, it says life expands and contracts in proportion to one's courage. Yeah. What do you think about that? Or can you speak to fear? Because um, you've certainly done some courageous things. I mean, and the reason I say that is because to get the people that you've interviewed, to get their time and attention, the most valuable resource out there, you got to have dogged determination to chase these people down. So you had to get past 
you had to get past all the questions like, Hey, am I, am I worthy of one of these conversations? Am I worthy of their time? And all that stuff. So. Yeah, probably more at the beginning. I felt that I don't feel that at all anymore though. I mean, I already know the answer if I don't ask. So why you might as well ask. Um, the worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to say no. Now I have to ask in a respectful way and I have a process for doing that. I might, I grew up in a, in working. My first job was a telephonic sales job where I was making 80 cold calls a day as well as sending boatloads of cold emails. That's all I did for a couple of years before then I, 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 and then I led a team that did that exact same thing. So I was involved in that line of work for, for many years. So I don't really, I overcame the fear of rejection or being ignored pretty quickly. Uh, in fact, that's, that's probably been that experience early in my career helped as I now continue to reach out to, to the names and the people that you're talking about and not only reach out to them, but then, but then have a conversation with them and, and have a conversation where you can hang at their level is not the easiest thing to do. So the, the, for me, the greatest medicine for fear has been preparation. I've, I, I learned at a young age playing sports that when I prepared, uh, meaning got ready for those games on Friday nights in high school, when I properly trained in the weight room, in the film room, on the practice field, meeting with my teammates, talking with my coaches, when I properly did that, I was successful. And when I didn't, and when I wasn't re ready, I failed. And the same thing has happened whether I was selling in my first telephonic job, whether I was reaching out to somebody to be on my podcast, whether I was having a conversation with Jim Collins was how prepared am I? Am I over-prepared? And I, I use a term Jim uh, has coined productive paranoia on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I am productively paranoid about being ready for those conversations, about writing a compelling cold email, uh, about not being scared about that, and then realizing um, and I've talked to Brian Koppelman about this on, on that, on that episode. So if you haven't checked that one, listen to the one with Brian, but it, the more times you talk to people in positions of power, the more comfortable you get. And you also realize that they are people just like you and me. Now they may be at another level intelligence wise, which I've been in that situation a lot, but the more times you put yourself in the position around whether they're powerful people, really smart people, really thoughtful people, the more times you're in their sphere, you're in their arena, the more comfortable you get, the better you get. So it's, it's constantly trying to expand those edges of my competency zone. And the best way to do that is, is by being around those types of people, having conversation with those types of people. So in order to do that, I can't be scared to send them a cold email. I can't be scared to ask. Like I said, if I already know the answer, if I don't ask, so I might as well give myself a shot by making the ask, maybe getting denied, maybe getting ignored. It happens every day. I sent four cold emails yesterday for people to come on my show and they haven't responded. And one of them um, from two days ago said, no, I'm not going to do it. That that's just the reality. You can't take it personal. You can't get upset. You just got to keep it moving because that's, that's the way this works. Because the, the question I'm probably asked the most is how do you get these guests? How do you do it? And I said, it's, I'm constantly thinking about who should be on the show and then consistently asking people to be on the show and then not getting upset 
when they say no or they ignore me. Just keep it moving. I think that's been a, 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 a way for me to be consistent, right? I release every Sunday at 7 o'clock Eastern and half for four years. The consistency can only be built by, I think, having that regular process on a daily basis. Yeah, you know, what, what a lot of people don't understand is how much time, effort, and, and technical know-how goes. In. Now, it's getting easier, but still the time and attention to detail, the technical know-how, and the persistence to get high-quality people to come and do a podcast with you, it's, it's not easy. Not easy at all. No, no. Yeah, it's exa- you're exactly right. It takes, it takes time, effort, patience, um, and, and thinking every no is a not yet. And that's, that's kind of my mode of operation uh, as I do this. That's good. On your um, website, learningleader.com, there's an article section. And um, I read one of the articles. It says, uh, it's titled, and you can find this by going to your website under articles. It's seven books to read to become a better leader. You chose a bunch. There's seven, obviously. But there's two of them that stood out to me in search of excellence. And so can you, can you talk a little bit about that one, what, what it did for you and why it made your top seven for leaders? The Tom Peters in search of excellence. Yeah. Um, I, well, I, I've been a Tom. my dad turned me on to Tom Peters years ago. I've been a Tom Peters fan. I started following him on Twitter, uh, obviously reading cause he's published a ton of books, but, but this, this idea around valuing excellence is a big deal to me. I love that word. You know, you mentioned that I say it, uh, I open every episode with asking leaders the commonalities they found among the, 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 the performers who sustain excellence. Um, so naturally I was, I'm, a, I'm, I, I, I was attracted to that. And I think that's what Tom's all about is, is valuing excellence and sharing some of the research and the stories behind those people who are able to sustain it. Um, and they, they, him and him and his co-author went out and looked for the companies and the leaders within those companies who were able to sustain excellence. Um, and that's, that's how they got the title of their book. So that, I think that's a good one. If you, you want to understand what it means to value excellent, to be excellent, to sustain excellence, that's, that's one that I, that's why it made the list there. Gotcha. Um, the river of doubt. How about, yeah, how the about road, for you there? Well, so part of it too is I think it's good to um, have some real life uh, stories, uh, perhaps uh, like biographies. I also have the Wright brothers on that list because mm-hmm. um, I, I'm uh, fascinated by their story, and certainly even more so because their bicycle shop is just down the street from where I live here in Dayton, Ohio. But the River of Doubt is 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 the fact that most people don't realize that President Roosevelt. Um, went down to the Amazon to, and, and, and charting and navigating uh, parts that were unknown in the Amazon. And he did this after he was president of the United States. Um, not a normal way for somebody to spend their time post-presidency. Uh, and so, and also this is a, a, a brutal trip. People died. There was a tax, there was disease, there were so many tough things happening and he was a guy that I've studied 
uh, pretty deeply because he was known as a sickly kid. And so as, as he grew up, he, he had to build a stronger body. And so he was constantly looking and seeking out opportunities to stretch himself, to, to grow, to get stronger, to be better. And that's kind of an ethos that I live by is that we've never arrived. We're always becoming. And I, I want to constantly seek challenges to push me to help me grow to, to to be better for the people that I'm I'm trying to to lead and serve. And and since you went there, what challenges are you are you pushing yourself to overcome right now? I know the book, man, that's a marathon in and of itself, especially to put out something that is high quality. What else though? I mean that's that's the thing right now. I just the process of putting the proposal together, then having a literary agent want to the not only a literary agent, but I've I think the best literary agent in the world want to wow. want to represent me, uh, Jim Levine, and then and then having a, having a couple of offers and ultimately signing a deal with McGraw Hill. I don't think I would have envisioned uh, having somebody pay me in advance to write a book ever. Um, and the fact that that's happened based based on some of the the success of the podcast and some other aspects of my life, um, I would say that was that the writing a book like most authors. Who, they they say this, but writing it has stretched me um, mentally more than anything I've ever done. Yeah, and that's that's no that's a culmination of of years of of work. Mm-hmm. That that's clear. That's a culmination. Um, yeah. Another another recent topic that you kind of tackled uh, with some with some well known people, Adam Savage and David Epstein. I listened to both of their podcasts. Adam Savage talks about the obsession of makers and, and, you know, I think he can separate, you know, makers and leaders, but, but let's, let's just talk about um, specialists, people that do really good at making something to the point where there's so much demand, they can barely keep up that. I think that's the context that people are demanding his work that he makes. You have to be obsessed with that. And David Epstein talks about generalism and you've asked, I think both of them, um, is it more about being a generalist or is it more about being a specialist? And that that's been an age old debate. So what have you concluded? And maybe you haven't made a conclusion, but let me, I want to get your thoughts on that. Uh, well, David's book's called range and it focuses on, on those who are why generalists will prevail in a world full of specialists and, and Adam, when he was working to collaborate with other people, while whether I was making his TV show Mythbusters or doing other uh, other things, always found journalists to be more helpful because they had a wide range of knowledge, not as de- not as much depth. So that the depth level was smaller, but the the wide range made them more useful and more valuable. So based on what's currently um, in my mind. I think uh, there is a lot to be said for generalists, as well as that the LinkedIn study that Dave and I spoke about and the fact that they studied um, the LinkedIn profiles of all the people who uh, were in a C-suite position. So if you desire to be a C-suite level position at a big company, the the, the biggest commonality among them, in addition to, to going to a top five uh, business school, which most of us have not done, but in addition to that, equally important were people who had spent time in, multi, in, in more functions than others, meaning maybe they got into the company in sales and they shifted to marketing and then they shifted to finance and they shifted to product and then they worked in HR. They had a wide range, as David talks about, of experiences which then better prepared them to be the CEO. 
So if that is a goal, and it's definitely not the goal of everyone, it doesn't have to be the goal of everyone, but if that is your goal, a lot of people have said that, then that I would say you should go that route, right? Try to work to be um, a, a, a generalist, and but but specialize at the time of wh- whatever you're doing. So if you're working in marketing, be 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 the, be, be the most knowledgeable market, marketing person you can until you then decide to go work in product, and then be the best product manager possible um, at 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 that time. And and then as as you progress, you've you've got all these different skill sets that you've built up because you focus so hard to be great at that particular um, function. So uh, I do think there's a lot of value in studying and becoming a mastery level of what you're currently doing. And then at some point uh, when you determine is right to then try to master another topic. So you're able to create a mastery level depth in more than one area. Um, I think the research backs up that that seems to be an optimal way to go about building a career. Yeah. That's good, man. I think you've, you've probably been around enough leaders and talked to enough leaders to know the value of getting feedback. And what I, what I appreciate about you is um, when, you're, when you're interviewing these high-level people, and I'll give you an example, um, you're not afraid to ask them tough questions. And I think that's where people shine the most is when they're put into a tough situation, you know? And I think one of the questions that I'm referring to is, is when you were having the interview with Carly Fiorina, you, you talked about that first uh, presidential debate where she came out as the front runner and kind of put, put everybody back in the background. Ultimately, she lost the race, but that was a tougher question. What do you, what's your thinking about that? Just being open, honest, you know, raw feedback, going where some people may be uncomfortable Where'd you get that boldness and why is it important? Uh, Part of it probably takes a little bit of time. Um, There is no question that I am afraid to ask any person on the the planet. Um, And I think, one, when I study the greatest interviewers in the world or the ones I look up to, whether it's Terry Gross from Fresh Air or Howard Stern or Anderson Cooper, um, some of those types of people, they're fearless when it comes to asking questions. They ask what they're curious about and what the audience, um, they deem the audience is curious about. I try to do the same thing. Um, I really follow my own curiosity and obsessions first. Um, and I've found based on the feedback from, from my audience and a question just like the one you asked is that people seem to like that. So if I'm curious or I want to know the answer, I will ask it every single time without hesitation. I've, I've never agreed to an interview where we weren't allowed to discuss a topic. In fact, I don't even offer that as an option. Um, so if, if it's where I, I watched Carly and how she handled some of the, 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 both the good and the bad from the debate stage, as well as the questions asking about her getting fired from HP. Mm-hmm. Um, and we yeah. talked about that and I, I, I needed to know I was, I didn't need to know, but I was very curious to understand that I've never been the CEO of, of HP, um, and gotten basically, uh, fired, uh, based on a number of different circumstances and asking her about her board. And she was very candid about the fact of some of the, the issues there. Um, if I'm curious about it, I'm going to ask it a hundred percent of the time. Uh, and it's taken maybe a bit of time to develop the courage to do that. But at this stage, 
I want to know those answers. I know the audience likes and appreciates people who are willing to ask those questions because yeah, it can be awkward. It could be, it could have moments of silence. It, it, a lot of different things could happen. It could derail a perfectly good 40 minute conversation you've already had. And there are times where I've thought, if I ask this, is this going to ruin the entire conversation or episode? And usually the, the, the answer in my head is maybe, but it's worth it. And then I go. And I think that's, that's kind of the, the mindset now. There is, there's, there's no person that I would be afraid to ask any, anything about. Um, and I think a lot of the guests I have on, they usually listen to an episode or two, or some of them are listeners regularly. So they know that coming in and, and they're right. Re- they're ready for those types of questions to be asked. And I think they can appreciate it as long as it's couched with, um, they can tell that I've done my research, that I'm prepared, that I've thought about it, that I have a point of view. I think that w- w- when they sense that they can respect it and, and they usually answer. Excellent, man. I love it. Well, thanks for that courage, man. I learned a lot from, from your tough questions. Um, yeah. just, just an off the cuff thing. I see Einstein's portrait behind you or his uh, rendition behind you. Uh, and I know you've interviewed um, Stanley McChrystal, John Moore Crystal, and he wrote about uh, Einstein, but why, why the picture? What do you appreciate most about him? Um, what did you learn from him? The, 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 the picture that you're referring to, I don't know, is it going to be on video or audio or both for people um, who are watching both. or listening? Both. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to, to set the stage for the audio listeners, Thanks. I have a, uh, no, I have a, um, a painting in my office of Albert Einstein. This painting was done by Eric Wall. Um, the significance is more of the person who painted it than less of what was painted. He actually painted that picture for those watching on video upside down. If you've been in the audience for one of Eric's speeches, he paints and speaks at the same time. And that, that painting was done in about four minutes um, with his hands and he did it upside down. And at the very end, he has this dramatic moment where he flips it up. And, and so more so than what Einstein means to me, what the painting means to me is that of being a performer. And when I get up on stage, it is my time to put on a show and I want to educate, I want to entertain, and I want to inform those people when I'm fortunate to be asked to speak on their stage. Eric Wall is a master of that. And seeing that painting every day when I come into my office reminds me of, of that performance because I watched him paint that this painting. I was in the audience for it. And so I, I would, um, I would say, I, I like to have things in my office that remind me of these big moments. I have another picture of, uh, I was given a gift of the Wright brothers patent. I'm looking at it right now. And at the bottom of my first ever client I had here in my, my role, what I do, he sent me this and he said, Ryan, remember to watch the birds because the Wright brothers are known as guys who would, who would take time away from building their flying machine, go up on the sand dunes in North Carolina and watch the birds and mimic them because they were trying to build wings of a flying machine. And for me, it's a good reminder to take a step back, to be reflective, to think, to look for unique ways to, to come up with, with, with ideas. So the pictures, the paintings, the things I have hanging up are symbolism of other ways for me to think, to prepare, to get ready, to be, to, to take me back to that moment of Eric Wall being a performer and, and, and how, how he did what he did. That's uh, those things are meaningful to, to me as I, I work to do what I do on a daily basis. Beautiful, man. I love it. 
That's, that's good. Thanks for explaining the, the context around that. It gives people an incentive to watch this video because it, it's really neat. And we have some incredibly talented and gifted people. It, it, it's just unbelievable to think that that could be painted upside down and while somebody was concentrating on delivering a talk, if that's, that's the case. Yeah, he's, he's, he's incredible. Eric's one of my favorite podcast guests, one of my favorite speakers. He's a true performer. He's an artist. I mean, he's legitimately an artist and he's a performer. And, um, I, 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 I took, I took as much for the way that he, uh, presented himself and his material than I did from actually what he said. And, um, that's just another learning moment for me as I work to, to, to get on stage, to leave them in, a bit of awe to create change, to make them think, to um, uh, to, to create emotion. I, I think of, of moments like that with Eric Wall. Well, that, that's good. I'm glad we kind of moved. I was going to ask you about your keynote speaking. What my first let me let me just ask you about the hour before you go onto a stage. How are you preparing to get onto that stage? You personally, um, what are you telling yourself? And you've probably already gone through the preparation, but I, but I want to know the last hour before you go on stage, what are you telling yourself? What are your intentions while you're out there? I just had one yesterday. So it's top of mind. I, um, I like to handwrite some notes to myself. I mean, I, I, I usually know the material cold, obviously by the day of and the hour before, but I still do one last kind of run through. I write notes. I did the same when I was playing football of, of writing notes based on the, the plays that we had in, in the, in the uh, game plan for that week and the potential defense we, defenses we were going to see. So I like to kind of script um, out the bullet points of my notes and potential transitions as well as maybe tweaks or stories that I could add to it or parts to stop and engage the audience. So I'll, I'll write that down. I'll read it and reread it and think about it. Um, and then I, th I try to just put myself in the shoes of, of the audience of what, what, how can I serve them? What do they need? What do they want? What do I want them to get from what I'm going to say? What actions do I want them to take based on what I'm going to say? And if I regularly put myself in the seats of the people in the audience, it helps me almost give the talk as a Q and a, as opposed to a presentation, uh, I love the Q&A portions, whether I'm in the audience or on stage. That's when you can really tell if a speaker knows his or her stuff is during the Q&A. And I try to think of them as always me answering their questions. What do they want? And then do it in a performative way. Naturally, I'm, I'm, I'm much more on the introversion, extroversion scale, lean towards um, introversion of gaining energy by myself and, and, and recharging in that manner. But those moments on stage, those are the times where it's go time. It's time to be, be the person who can deliver and perform and educate, uh, entertain, uh, make them feel something so much that it moves them to change their behavior. All those things I'm thinking about as I'm getting ready to go up on stage. And then while I'm on stage engaging that based on the look in their eyes, the, the, the head nods, uh, the clapping, the laughing, anything that may be happening. And then, and then playing off of that, um, is, 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 is what I've, I've, I think picked up on as I do it more and more. And as I have the last four years now, uh, speaking on stages all over the world.
Excellent, man. Yeah. One of my favorite communicators, public speakers, he says, if a speaker goes in front of a group of people and they don't change after his talk, then he failed as a communicator. Yep. Do you agree with that? I mean, are you always seeking to change people's mindset, actions? Yeah. I, okay. I, 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 I want to impact how you think. I want to impact emotionally how you feel. But most importantly, I want to impact how you act. You should change something based upon what I said and how I said it um, every single time I'm on stage. And, uh, I think that's part of my duty as, as someone who's delivering a message. If not, that means either I didn't share it in a compelling way or what I shared has already been heard by everybody in the audience. Both are really bad. And so I've, I've got to share something in a compelling way and something that maybe they have never heard before, or certainly never heard with the way that I, I tell it, um, and, and why I'm telling it and how then to implement that. So that's, that's my job. And if I'm not able to do that, then, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't get booked. Yeah, that's good, man. Okay. I want to move on to some of your favorite learning techniques too. And I want to start with maybe a book, something that you reference often go back to because you underline principles. It's kind of like a handbook for, you know, operating. Is there one that stands out? A book? Yeah. Just, um, we talked about a a few of them. Mm -hmm. Um, so I told the story about the, the, the Wright brothers and, and remembering to watch the birds, um, that, that is a, re- a good reminder for me to, to regularly block out time for, for the deep work, focusing on a cognitively demanding task. So I, I, I go back to that one often. I'm a big fan of James Kerr's work in legacy. I spoke to James about that when it comes to leadership, about how to, uh, when we're going to properly set goals for the people that you serve and lead that they, it, that must be an intrusive process, meaning that, or in, in, I'm sorry, inclusive process, meaning that they need to be a part of that. I think his book legacy, when he studied the New Zealand, all blacks rugby team, um, was, was a, a, a good reminder for me. So I think book wise that's there. And then one of my, the, the ones I go back to all the time is give and take by Adam Grant. It was a transformative moment for me when I read that book. And the fact that I, I, I saw the science, the research, the stories behind the fact that people who are constantly striving to serve and give to others, uh, end up being as, as successful or more successful than any other people on the planet. And so I think give and take is a great, little book to read and reread and, and look, look at, uh, and talk about because, uh, that's the type of world I prefer to live in. And I want others to want that as well. And so I, I would say that's something I go back to regularly. I also gift it a lot to others. I'd second that book. I was given that book by a mentor of mine. And, um, and this was probably four years ago, three or four years ago. And since reading that book, my mentor has been the most impactful person in my life. And that's, that's his methodology. That's why he gave me that book. So that that's an incredible recommendation. I see that on your bookshelf. It looks like, or on your windowsill. Is that correct? Um, yeah. It's, yeah. I have like a bunch of copies of it. So it's, yeah. it's around here. Yeah, for sure. Cool. I have. Yeah. Uh, originals. His other book is in here as well. Yeah. Chris Russell's book, uh, Adam Grant's here. Yeah. I got a lot, a lot of that you refer back to. Yeah. 
How about other resources? Are there are there thing? Let's say one one newsletter or one um, podcast that you continually refer to, other than yours, because you do a ton of learning and a ton of ter- teaching on yeah. yours. My favorite pod, my favorite interviewer is Brian Koppelman. So his is called The Moment. I listen to Brian quite a bit. Um, I listen to Freakonomics some. Uh, I listen to How I Built This. Uh, I listen to Joe Rogan. Um, Terry Gross from NPR. Hers is called Fresh Air. Uh yeah, those are the main ones that I like to lay. I like Dan Carlin, hardcore, hardcore history. Although his is 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 out, you never know when those are coming out. But those are those are some of my favorite podcasts. JJ Reddick, um, he also has been on a little bit of a hiatus from playing, but he's one of my favorite interviewers as mm. well. Especially impressive since he's a current uh, basketball player in the NBA. So yeah, those are some of the ones I like. Cool, man. Thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um. I know this is have to, has to be a tough question, but based on uh, what you told me already in this podcast, I'm going to ask you, um, if, if somebody came to you and said, where should I start in your podcast? Give me the first two episodes to start in your podcast. What would those episodes be? Um, the- a lot of people, the way they listen is they start, they, they start wherever they've, they've picked up. And then they also, they listen to two a week and they also start from number one and then they eventually kind of meet in the middle. Um, so that's one way to do it. And then listen to the one that comes out every Sunday night at seven. So I don't I, are you asking what I think is the best. No, I'm at, that, that'd be too tough. I think that would be a hard question unless you want to answer that. But where would you point people? Hey, I want to develop as a leader. I'm brand yeah. new to this stuff. You put on this podcast, where do I start? Which episode? I think Cat Cole number 78 is a great one to start for somebody like that. Cat gotcha. is one of the most impressive people I've ever talked to. Um, if you listen to, to this week's is Adam Savage 311 versus 78, you'll notice obviously a, a, a huge gap in the skill of the interviewer. Um, the, a lot, a lot of growth has happened in the past few years. So, but that's okay. Uh, that's good. Uh, people, I'm, I'm okay with that being out there. I, I want to make sure those, those remain public and able to be listened to because you can hear the growth and that's part of this story. Um, but I think you'll, you'll, you'll hear a big difference in that. But as far as what, what somebody like Kat shares and her philosophy around being a productive achiever as a leader and how she did some of those things and the tough battles she fought through in order to be someone who is the definition of excellence should be the president of our country someday if she runs. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many incredible things. I, I would say that's that's one I would point people to and not as well known as she should be or probably will be. Um, and but but incredibly thoughtful, intentional, intelligent leader, uh, Cat Cole. Okay, thanks for that, man. Um, one other person that I wanted to ask you before we get into kind of what you're doing, um, I wanted to ask you about Henry Cloud. I read his book Integrity, and I just finished his book Boundaries for Leaders. But Integrity really kind of man, I was I was kind of blown away by that work to be able to take a single word and wrap so much around it. Obviously integrity is a huge word and there's so much context that can go around that. But the way that he communicates integrity and leadership in that book is absolutely phenomenal. I believe 
Um, when you were interviewing, I think you've done multiple interviews with Henry Cloud. Am I correct? Uh, yeah, I think I've, I've had him yeah. on twice. Yeah. What, uh, what stands out about him? Because he is a, a brilliant communicator, brilliant leader, mm -hmm. I believe. Great author. Yeah, uh, Boundaries for Leaders was a, was a seminal book for, for me and in, in my process of becoming a, a better leader. And I read that when I was a mid-level manager at LexisNexis. Um, Henry, I've also seen him speak. Um, I find that he is one of the best at um, taking big ideas, distill, distilling them down to their essence and sharing it with simplicity, whatever the message may be. So from a communication perspective, he's a master, great, great writer, incredible speaker. Um, certainly from my perspective and my interactions with him lives the life of integrity. I don't, I don't know him better than, than, than the few times I've spoken to him though. But uh, so I am always careful to say that for those who I don't know uh, incredibly well. Uh, but, but just a, a remarkable, um, remarkable leader who uh, has, has, has created something that he's, he has a, a movement of people as well, this boundaries movement. Um, uh, when, when it comes to what he's written about, I'm very impressed with what he's done. And, and uh, if you haven't had him on yet, I would highly, uh, highly suggest uh, trying to make that one happen. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, okay, I want to move on to what, what, what you have going on. And I want to start with speaking because I think, man, you could spend a hundred hours in a room and communicate real well, but when you're on a stage, it's like, you know, you can't return back. You can't erase. So you gotta be, you gotta be on and you gotta say things that are impactful in a small amount of time. You gotta put a ton of preparation into it. So my question around you, you're a keynote speaker is, uh, what is your favorite keynote to give and just a couple quick ideas that come from it? And why is that your favorite keynote? You know, I, I like the, this process of becoming a learning leader and sharing how anybody can do that. Um, and how folk, creating, a, creating a life of being a long-term dedicated learner, as well as uh, uh, choosing to raise your hand and take on the sometimes lonely responsibility of being a leader and making the tough decisions of all of the core components that go into that and some of the actions and behaviors and the makeup of a person who is willing, able um, to do that consistently with excellence. So that is, is, is what's fresh on my mind. I did that one yesterday, uh, speaking about some of the behaviors that go into that, some of the stories of, about myself as well as other people that I've been fortunate to know. Um, some of the practical takeaways, right? That's some of the action. Um, uh, so really, I, I try to zoom out and zoom in, zoom out and zoom in, tell stories, share the science. How does this apply to me? Tell stories, share the science. How does this apply to me? That's my process of writing, speaking, communication in general. Um, that's what I try to do when I, when I get up on stage. Uh, because uh, any, I mean, there are good performers who can just get up and perform, but if there's no, uh, if there's no meaning behind the content they're sharing or, or actionable takeaways, then it was a, it could be an entertaining performance, but there's, there's nothing more than that. And sometimes it's okay. Like sometimes we want to be entertained. We go to movies where we don't have to think and we can shut off our brain and go. And there are speakers who can provide that. I, I, 
I don't want to be that. I want to be the person who is certainly entertaining, but also informative and educational and can provide practical takeaways for you. Excellent, man. Very good. Um, let's talk about BHAGs. So tell me, tell me your BHAG for 10 years from now. Where's Ryan in 10 years? If I left, I, if, I don't, I don't think don't, that way. You I don't, don't think I don't, that way. No, I don't think that way. I think about what I'm doing now and what I'm focused on. So I, um, I'm not sure that that's the proper way to think. I, I just, I'm not going to, I can't make something up that doesn't exist uh, because I don't, I don't even think probably two years out, let alone 10 years. I definitely don't think five years out. Um, so, cause I mean, five years ago I was working in corporate America. I didn't have a podcast. I didn't have a single conversation with any of these people. And then five years later, I've had 311 conversations with, with some of the greatest leadership minds in the world. And I've been able to leave corporate America and do this full time. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said any of that. And, and so basically I, I, I questioned doing any exercise like that because when I look back, it, it, it never, they never, uh, jive, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, I don't, I, I try to focus on, on doing what I'm doing right now to the absolute best of my ability and focusing deeply on doing that incredibly well. And then opportunities will be created from having that mindset. My framework is on that. If I'm going to speak, I, I want to be as good as I could possibly be in that moment speaking on stage. If I'm going to record a podcast, I'm going to be as prepared as I could possibly be to record a great podcast. I'm going to write a book. It's going to be the most useful book for, the, for my intended audience as, as possible in that moment. So that's really my focus is on, on, on doing those things well, knowing that they will lead to opportunities that I could never even predict. I couldn't even think about being a possibility. Certainly five years ago, none of the things that I'm doing now would have been on the BHAG list. None of them, not a book, okay. not a podcast, not the relationships I've built with the people that, that I'm with. So I think, um, I don't think, I don't necessarily think that's a bad way to think for other people, but for the, for the sake of how I operate, that's, that's just not how, how I, how I do go about doing it. I'm not saying that couldn't change. Sure. Uh, and maybe it should. Um, but, but, but you asked, so that's, that's, yeah. that's my, that's how I, that's how I do it. Thanks for being real, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So since you, since you talked a little bit about it, can you give us some insight into your book kind of as we wrap up? What, mm-hmm. uh, is it something that, tell me, tell me how you decided to write a book, why you decided to write a book and then give us some, some, some of the synopsis and, Sure. My book is intended for the, for the person who is, who is making the leap from individual contributor to manager for the very first time. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a, a time in my career that I fumbled, made mistakes, uh, and messed up. And I wish I would have had a book or a resource to help me make that move. It's the biggest jump you make in your career is when you go from just worrying about yourself to now being in charge of a group of people and literally you being the sum of, of those people. It is the most underserved market, in my opinion, in the business world today is that first front line. And it's also the most important because those people are closest to the, the ones who are actually making it happen. They need to have a front line obsession 
right? They can hear what's really going on. As you rise the ranks, which I did, I then went to director and then VP of North American sales in the company I was in. As you rise the ranks, the further away from it, the less you know. And so I chose to focus my first book on that particular area because there's not enough out there about it because I have a unique perspective from doing it, from messing it up, from learning from my mistakes, and hopefully I can help others avoid making the same mistakes that I did. And my background on that is really three-pronged and I think different than most people. One, playing sports. I played quarterback, so I I was essentially a player coach. You have to lead and play at the same time. That's that's what a lot of frontline managers do. Two, I worked in corporate America for 12 years, earned my MBA, rose the ranks, did, did the thing that most people try to do and, and, and did that for 12 years. And then at the same time, at the tail end of that 12-year career and now into what I'm doing now, I was having conversations with the brightest leadership minds in the world. And so when you mash all of those three things together and then you, you, know, you, you get out what I'm trying to put out, put on the page, um, that's, that's going to be the essence of, of my book. And the, so the first one is going to be targeted that specific time in your life and your career because it's underserved and it's very important and there are a lot of them. And that's, that's what I'm, I'm aiming to, to work to help. Beautiful, man. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. Well, let's, let's wrap up, man. I, uh, I just want to reiterate that, um, if I was going to recommend one podcast to listen to, to, to develop your leadership, it would be the learning leader show. Thank um, you. Point people to where they can find you on, yeah. on all channels or the most important learningleader.com. Um, if you also want to read, we talked about mindful Monday. If you want to receive my mindful Monday, you can text learners to four, four, two, two, two. So learningleader.com or text learners to four, four, two, two, two. And if you're on Twitter or Instagram, uh, my handles at Ryan Hawk, one, two, Ryan Hawk, 12. Awesome, man. Well, I'll tell you what, man, I, there's a really cool quote and I think you'll appreciate this. Um, it says when the, it, when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. Yeah, the students ready, the teacher will appear. You're one of the teachers that I've learned from at a distance. And now I've, I've had the pleasure of interviewing you. So I want to say thank you. And I want to say thanks to the people that this will benefit um, my circle. And I'm excited to read your book, excited to continue to learn from you and all the great guests that you have on your show, man. Thank you so much. I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to share and Appreciate the amount of preparation you did for uh, for this conversation, man. What have you What have you gathered? Have you as have you have as you've had these these curiosity conversations? What are some of the commonalities you found among leaders who sustain excellence? I'm curious. I think for me, and and I may be finding what I'm looking for, but my favorite leaders to learn from are the are the servants, and and I don't have access to leaders across the nation. However, I'm gaining access to them. But the ones that I've access to and the ones that I've chased down in my small way, uh, they're they're CEOs of big companies here locally. But man, they're servants. They want to serve their people. They're first and foremost, they're for their people. Like the the who that you talked about at the very beginning, that's their mindset. Um, Before all the tasks get done, the people are going to get taken care of. Those, those, and, and you know what, the, the, the older I get, the more and more I learn, it is all about the who life is about relationships. So they have to be first or something else becomes first. 
Um, these are people like Gordy Bunch and Bob Koenig and Bob Milner. I've, I've interviewed these people. Um, Deborah Myers, they're, they're just incredible givers. You talk about give and take. Um, you know, they're the, they're the quintessential givers, man. I love so, it. Yeah. That's great stuff. That's great stuff. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. Well, thank you for being a giver, man. I appreciate that. And I look forward to continuing the conversation and sharing your work with people. Thank you. I appreciate you doing that. That, uh, the best form of marketing is word of mouth telling one person at a time. There's, there's no better way than when somebody hears from someone else, they trust that this is a place to go, to learn, to grow, to get better. Um, that is awesome. And I, I very, very much appreciate that. Absolutely, man. I'll see you next time. All righty. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit bellinstitute.org. That's V-E-L institute.org to help us make an impact.